Hello and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are the Geek Show's show dedicated to movies either starring by or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from documentaries to science fiction, from country and western to hip-hop. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and critic for the Geek Show and Horrified Magazine, the British horror website. I've been joined this week by... Aidan Fatkin, yet again. Um, I also contribute to The Geek Show. You can find me on Letterboxd under the username Aidan Neff. I'm starting to get my mojo back for watching films, by the way, now. It's, it's oh, finally good. happened. It's it's taken a year thanks to the fucking pandemic, but <laughs> we've, we've got there. We, we finally got there. So That's the weird yeah. thing, isn't it? Over the last year when we've had all the time in the world to watch films, I've been less inclined to watch films. I'm pretty sure there's an episode of The Twilight Zone that's based around this premise. <laughs> it does feel like we've been in a Twilight Zone episode for the last year or so, mind. Yeah. So, I completely agree. Yes. Uh, the fact, listeners, that this week's episode of Pop Screen is a heart-wrenching documentary about a mercurial talent who died before her 30th birthday on its own says nothing about this show other than, hey, it's not going to be an ABBA musical every week. But as if Capardi as Amy about the all-too-brief life and career of Amy Winehouse is of a piece with one of this show's major running themes to use pop music as a lens to examine particular social and generational trends, in this case particularly the way that celebrities are packaged for our entertainment. The film was released in 2015 at Cannes. It went on to win the Best Documentary Feature Oscar. And now, 10 years after the death of its subject, we reconvene to ask if Capardia's film has aged better than the culture it depicts. Now, I think maybe an interesting way of starting this would be to go straight into how we feel about the artist. Hmm. Am I starting then? Or... Well, I know that you had a slightly different journey to me. I'll just fill mine in if, at first, because yeah. I yeah. always loved Amy Winehouse. I loved Amy Winehouse from the moment I heard Stronger Than Me on the radio. And I distinctly remember thinking, wow, this gives me the same feeling I had when I first heard Lauren Hill's solo work. Mm. And then she made an album, Frank, and she which I thought was great, and she disappeared for what felt like a very long time. Occasionally you saw pictures of her, and it, it's hard to really sort of think back to this because that sort of real thin, tattooed, big beehive with the streak in it, that that is just what people think of when they think about Amy Winehouse. Mm. But when that was first unveiled, I thought, oh, shit, what? Is she okay? You know, because she did it yeah, 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 dramatically yeah. thinner than she than she did. But then she puts out rehab, which is terrific. Um, Back to Black comes out. She becomes, I would say, probably the biggest female singer in the UK. I mean, it was it was a time slightly before the likes of Adele came along, and Adele yeah, came along yeah. very much in her wake. Um, and then she gets trapped in this weird vortex of, of tabloid stories about her drinking and drug use, which we'll talk mm. about later because it forms a large part of Capardia's documentary. Now, mm. for you, that wasn't the case, was it? That wasn't your no, history with no. uh, Amy? Now, now, Amy Winehouse was interesting because 
because obviously when uh, Graham pitched this that I like to do an episode on Amy Winehouse, I, I felt mm. like it was probably something about time that I bit the bullet with her. Because now with Amy Winehouse, for me in particular, all I remember, because around about the time she was famous, I would have been at least, what, 10 years old at the yeah. time? Because when Back to Back came out, that was, was it 2006? I've got that right. Yeah. 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 yeah, I would have been only 10 years old. So my only memories of her would be that tabloid imagery at the time. Mm. And of course, when she tragically passed away, I would I was about 15. So my memories of her at the time was obviously, <laughs> look at that um, drug addict on the TV. Yeah, sadly. yeah, yeah. So, and that's how, and that was just, and, and obviously I'm not being that to be crude or anything. That is just obviously our generation's memory of her at the time, mm. for me in particular. So, um, it, so it wasn't until like, I would have said like a couple of years after she had sadly passed away that I, I felt more obliged to check her out as an artist. And, you know, I've just recently listened to Back to Black for the first time. Bloody hell, that's a depressing record, but it's a great record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing, I suppose part of why I was drawn towards it is that now we are sort of saturated in sort of quite dark music. I mean, people dismissively refer to sad pop girls for stuff like, you know, Lord and Billie Eilish and Lana mm. Del Rey. Back mm. then, there wasn't really anything like that coming out. And I felt like part of the reason why I latched on to Back to Black was at the time uh, I was on the dole. I had oh, recently right, yeah. graduated university. I had a horrible time at university. And yet you were still in this kind of very blurry media cycle where we were told that everything was great. And in fact, there was no such thing as class or poverty anymore. And even though mm. Back to Black is obviously not about that, it did feel liberating that at least there was one massive pop cultural thing that didn't seem obliged to pretend that everything was happy and everything was okay. Yeah, part of that Tony Blair zeitgeist, zeitgeist of the time, yeah. It was yeah. very shiny, the Blair years, I remember thinking. Well, that's when I think back to them and I try and think of a word to encapsulate it. It was just shiny. Everything had to be shiny. And it's just gradually gotten more shit as we've come <laughs> yes, along the years. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like I say, I thought it was a dreadful time to be young back in 2006. I didn't know I was fucking born. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, back on topic. Yeah, back on topic. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I was quite surprised with Back to Black initially because the first time I listened to it, I liked it. Mm. I wouldn't still. I still wouldn't call myself an Amy Winehouse fan, but yeah, know, I can sort of see with her lyrics and how directed they can be, and especially for a female artist for to write a breakup album like the way she did, to ploy much of the blame on herself as she did, obviously, the relationship as well and mm. how that broke apart. Um, when you listen to something like the title track "Back to Black," you can get certainly get a sense of that, and I can't really think of many female artists who do that. I mean, the only other example off the top of my head who's equally brilliant at doing that is someone like Fiona Apple, for example. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I was Who, thinking, uh, I was yeah. trying, to, I thought, what I thought you were going to say there, because she does mention it in the documentary, she says she's a big Carol King fan. And I hmm. do think there is a part of Back to Black where, yeah, it's like tapestry for the 21st century. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't listened to much Carol King, so I can't comment, but uh, specifically Fiona Apple, I think not her last record, Fetch the Bolt Cutters, but I think it was the record before that, Idler Wheel or something like that, right. which is very similar. And I'm a massive Fiona Apple fan, if you haven't checked her out. She's honestly brilliant at what she does. Mm. Um, but no, back on point, it's just, it's just those honesty with that you find it that I, I find that I really appreciate on my second uh, listen to Back to Black. And especially when you get lyrics that obviously are tampering into like the areas of the time. So artists like the Renettes or you know, artists like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's much different here, much different context, because obviously, as Graham said, a part of uh, Amy Winehouse's imagery is we remember her for the massive beehive, the tattoos, yeah. and obviously being a lot more... Um, especially with the slangs con- confirmed. Like, I, f- I think it's like on back to, I think the first opening line on back to back where it's just like, uh, I get his dick wet or something like yeah, that. And then he it kept just, his yeah, dick wet. Yeah. He kept his dick wet. Yeah. So the slang is a lot more vulgar and in your face about it. And, you know, you can understand why that would turn some people off. But mm. at the same time, you know, you kind of got to think, well, you know, yeah, she does have her mind on full throttle mode, really. Yeah. Yeah, there's a directness to it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) When you talked about Slime, I was reminded that her most intensely London moment in this film is when she's asked about the influences on Back to Black. And she says, I've been listening to a lot of gel groups. (laughs) (laughs) Group groups that are gels, I guess. Gals. Gals. It's not even that, it's gel, it's G-L, like gel. It's such a great sort of old-fashioned East End pronunciation. <laughs> I loved it. Mm. The Cockney accent is just so hot on my mind. It, it just makes a character, yeah. So in terms of character, you're introduced to this with what what I think is, in Capadia's film, one of the great documentary opening scenes, the uh, home video of her at 14 singing Happy Birthday to You to a Friend, mm. which is wonderful because if you haven't seen it, they're, they're singing Happy Birthday as a kind of a joke. They're at a birthday party. No one's being that serious. But her voice is like a tornado, like even when she's mm. joking around. And the funny thing is, is that you're not expecting it in the slightest because mm. most singers at that time, or you presume at that age, you know, would be just developing their voice or something like that. I mean, you know, and but for Amy to just come on just immediately with that voice just sets the tone right away. I mean, I, I was watching a few interviews with Capardia as research and throughout the footage he explains that he's kind of amy's like tr- obviously looking directly into camera all, all the time so it's mm-hmm. almost in these earlier stages that, that she's treating the camera as her friend yeah yeah regardless so she's always looking towards the camera she's always like looking towards it and then of course as it goes you know further and further into the film that relationship changes as her image changes as her character changes mm-hmm. so it definitely does signal that very early on and you know i'm you're completely right it, it that opening scene is just a really lovely way to set it off, especially mm. as, as this film gets into its darker moments, yeah. So we should we should talk a bit about Capadia's style for people who aren't familiar with him. Capadia has made fiction films. His film, The Warrior, starring the later Van Khan, was mm. I remember, kind of a core celebrity in the early noughties because 
Britain was going to put it forward for the best foreign language feature Oscar. I do, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I know it's not called best foreign language feature. They change the name every year, and now it's called best film with them little words at the bottom or something like that. But <laughs> that one, um, and they they couldn't do it because it's set in India, and the language is was deemed to be not indigenous to Britain. Um, I think mm. they changed the rules after that because people were kind of annoyed by that you think well you, you didn't say that bit up front it's a film it's not in the english language you know that is kind yeah of what i mean for. yeah 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 which kind of explains why they make a mess of that character even further on down the line yes every single yeah yeah yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. But he has particularly recently had most of his success in documentaries. He's made a trilogy of documentaries about, you know, people who I guess were pushed onto the stage at a very young age. Um, yeah, yeah. As he dubs it, I think child geniuses or something. Because you got Art and Center, which yeah. obviously landed him a lot of major success. You have this one, Amy, and you yeah. have his most recent film, Diego Maradona. Now. Out of the films that I've seen from Clopardio, Amy's the first one. I've seen a half an hour of Diego Maradona. Mm. Um, and the reason why I didn't finish it at the time was not because I didn't enjoy the film or anything. It was just because, you know, I was having a lot less time on my hands at the time. So I, I, so I will go back and finish it when I can. Mm. Um, but I think what I'm drawn to Clopardio's style is like most documentarians focus on like the typical style, which is like talking heads, imagery, Etc. Etc. B roll over the top, that kind of thing. Yeah. With Capardi, it's more like a montage, isn't it? Mm. More like a collage of different imagery over the top, and you still have interviews in them, but they're more like, especially in Amy's case, they're more like distant voices, voices as if they're remembering Amy just as much as we are, the audience. Yeah. So, and that works favorably. What he's trying to make across in this film, yeah. I think it works particularly well here. I should say, I, I've seen a bit of Senna and I know for some people it's the best of these documentaries and I know a lot of people say, oh, you don't have to be into Formula One to enjoy it. I'm sure that's true, but I also think people are underestimating how little I like Formula One. It's like, mm, God, yeah. challenge me to enjoy this. I, I will, you know, I will not pass the test. Um, Fair enough. I've seen the full Maradona film, which I, I think is good. I have some reservations about it, which I think we'll get into because my problems with it contrast quite nicely with what I love mm. about Amy. One yeah. thing that I think Amy has on its side that the two sports films don't is that this is an intensely documented life. That mm. when you talk about someone like Diego Maradona, you're talking about someone who grew up in a different generation, in a much from a much poorer background. You know, his family did not have a video camera on all the time. But yeah, also, when yeah. when he was at the peak of his powers, he wasn't in this culture where everyone has a camera on their phone, where there's a massive market for photographs of celebrities. You know, that means that there is. There is firstly a richer source of uh, sources of material with Amy. You get a much mm. wider variety of images that makes the film more visually exciting. But also you are aware of the different ways that Amy Winehouse was looked at through her life. You are aware that whereas that early 
home video footage of her singing at a friend's birthday party and the shots of her walking down the street with you know blood coming out of her feet they they are both candid mm. shots you know they are both shots of her off stage and off her guard but other than that they are very different images taken by different people for incredibly different reasons yeah 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 no i totally agree i mean especially in maradona's case cuz i remember getting through like the first half an hour of it thinking okay, this is good, but it's mm. not making me latch onto it even further than it already is. And I don't know whether that's because of just my lack of knowledge in the subject, probably mm. the same way that I would feel about the cinema documentary. But like I said, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just something that I'm, I'm probably going to need to sink into a bit more. Um, but as for this, I mean, Amy Winehouse was a figure that I do remember. And there is a story, I mean, as Capadia describes it in his uh, documentary, in, in I think it's film before interview, not his documentary, sorry, is that with Amy Winehouse, everything was either like at the top of its peak mm. or it was incredibly dark and depressing. There was no in between. There was no there was no part of her life that felt mediocre. Yeah. So in a way that just makes it, you know, naturally flow like a story in that regard. Yeah, you can see a bit of it in the Maradona documentary as well, uh, which is also, you know, a story of an incredible rise and fall. The thing that I think Capadia does in Amy that I wish he had done more of in Maradona is that in Diego Maradona, we are constantly told that this guy was a, a footballer of genius, that people who'd followed the mm. game for decades were astonished watching what he did. But as someone who isn't interest in football I never got a real understanding of why I never felt like I understood yeah. what set him apart from other footballers whereas I think in mm. Amy he gets some distance inside the subject's actual craft and makes you understand why people were surprised and impressed by her and I think that's a difficult thing to do because especially when footballing is well footballing you can mm. kind of understand well hang on I mean He's kicking the ball about like any other footballer. He's yeah, yeah. You kind, <laughs> yeah. You, can't, you, can't, you kind of do get that sense. Whereas with Amy Winehouse, we hear, we can hear what she sings. Mm, we know yeah. what she sounds like, and we know about her character as well. And we know how much of a detailed, poignant lyricist she can be as well. Mm. So, and with all this evidence just backing it up, you can tell immediately that this comes out incredibly well detailed well researched and just really just loving towards its subject yeah Very yeah caring i find because capadia himself in one of the interviews i heard with him capadia himself was by no means an expert on amy winehouse's career when mm. this documentary was pitched to him it was pitched to him by uh I think, yeah, Universal Music UK pitched it to him because they'd seen Senna and thought that mm. he could do something similar with uh, this. And he remembers, I remember him saying that he had, for example, absolutely no idea that she played guitar. But I did, mm. because that was a part of her image when she did Frank. But for Back to Black, mm. it wasn't part of the image and it just faded away from... Uh, coverage of her so I think in the film you can 
see Kapadi as kind of novice enthusiasm, that he is looking through lyrics and sort of song sheets and saying, it's actually really good, and putting it up there with the enthusiasm of someone who's discovering the music for the first time. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get that sense of it as well when watching the film, I guess, because there's countless recounts of um, how... It, the real Amy, you didn't know the real Amy until um, you seen the Frank side of her. Mm. So that was the real Amy. As soon as she uh, got to the back to black phase where she had the beehive, the tattoos, she looked an awfully lot fit and a lot more sick. Mm. Um, you do get the sense that obviously her, the old Amy is still there. It's just slightly clouded Yeah, within this persona that she's created. And unfortunately that, that you know, had its consequences of its own. Yeah. Do you think the persona negatively affected her? Do you think that there there became an element where she had to be that kind of tragic beehived singer or whatever, like, three-word description people cooked up? Mm, it's a difficult one to describe because, obviously, when the paparazzi are concerned, and we'll get on to the paparazzi sequence is in this film later on, because, mm. honestly, they're probably some of the most overwhelming sequences of its kind that I've seen that... Yeah a film to depict, never mind just a documentary. Um, but with Amy Winehouse, I think it was hard to difficultly tell her that she wasn't a tabloid celebrity like in the vein of Katie Price or something yeah. like that. I think that's the issue. And I think that's the misunderstanding that a lot of people misremember her by because she wasn't like that at all. She was just someone who, you know, had a unique talent, a unique gift. Uh, and unfortunately, when obviously, because she also suffered from bulimia as well, from very young mm. age as well, which mm. is an eating disorder, um, that impacted her and all the bad luck that came with that. Uh, unfortunately, that attracted the wrong crowd at the wrong time, and then she just ends up being in this mess. Yeah, it's, it's just an awful sequence that I, I, I just can't really imagine that someone going through it, it must be a horrendous situation i'm glad you sort of mentioned casey price and that kind of tabloid eva because I, I distinctly remember part of the oddness of this eva for me was that i was watching someone who i had followed since her very first single and i knew mm. was an incredible songwriter and an incredible vocalist get sort of lazily dismissed as oh, just one of those famous for being famous people and I, yeah, I thought that, yeah. that's interesting because the people who were saying that were people who were complaining about tabloid culture and celebrity culture but if you thought of Amy Winehouse as being in the same bracket as Katie Price or Paris Hilton or someone like that mm. the only reason why you would think that is because the tabloids had told you that that was yeah, how she was yeah. depicted in the tabloid. Yeah, so yeah. there seemed to be this attitude in the 2000s that making fun of celebrities was some sort of a, a bold broadside against the shallowness of the mass media. And a lot of the time it wasn't. A lot of the time it was just mm. an excuse by supposedly like liberal-minded people to just pile on young women with a drug problem. Yeah, and Asif Kapadi does touch on this because um, there's, I think there's a particular montage in the middle where um, yeah. obviously we do get that sissy that side and we see comedians making cheap jokes about her appearance. So people like Frankie Boyle and uh, Jay Leno is the other one, I think. Jay Leno I, and Graham Norton does it as well, yeah. Yeah, 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 and Frankie Boyle. And y you just think that as part of that zeitgeist, I mean, they still kind of do it now as part of their routines. Um, 
but unfortunately, you know, that can be read the wrong way, especially yeah. when, especially when on the benefit of hindsight when looking at it now. Jesus Christ, that is incredibly poorly timed when looking at yeah, those yeah, now. yeah. And also, the part of the brilliance of that sequence is that Capardia intercuts it with candid shots from Amy's flat, and it's when she's at the absolute depths of a heroin addiction, and she mm. looks absolutely terrifying, you know, so unhealthy, and you cut yeah. from that to sort of Jay Leno making a cheap joke about her cooking crystal meth or something similarly well-researched, and mm. it, it does... I suppose part of what the film is doing is showing you the rest of the iceberg. It's like there, there were a lot of things in here that I remember being in the papers or I remember being in the music press or seeing on TV, but it all has a different effect when it's threaded through as a story about someone's entire life. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that sequence is definitely was one of the sequences where I had to think to myself, this isn't just a typical standard like music documentary this has mm. like a real bite to it and a real point to say about yeah uh, celebrity image for example or artist image if, if yeah. you want to describe a mini house like that yeah um but no I, I think it's very poignantly told from that point perspective yeah i agree I, I think that was one of the sequences that got a lot of attention when it came out because i think in an insane way, I don't think anyone has really thought about it before. It feels like a very different environment now, because and um, this is not the first time we brought this up on pop screen, but it is one of the big pop music uh, themed stories of 2021. But we're recording this against the backdrop of the Britney Spears conservatorship hearings. Hmm. Yeah. And I remember Britney Spears' nervous breakdown was treated in a very, very similar way because she was felt to be a, a very glib, silly kind of pop star. Then she did not deserve our respect when she was going through some sort of horrifying mental health crisis. Yeah, yeah, that breakdown was utterly horrifying. Yeah. Because we all remember the imagery, uh, the tabloid images of like her hair completely yeah. shaven off and having a complete breakdown in the middle of. Was it like the middle of the street or something like that? Yeah, I think she like attacked someone's car or something like that. And it was all, it's telling that I can't properly remember the context, but I have the the pictures in my mind's eye. Mm. And unfortunately, that's kind of the point that Capardia wants to bring up a point when it comes to pressing paparazzi is that you, even if you like click on the image on a website, you're still feeding that machine to keep going. And for every click you do, you just can make it problem get worse and worse and worse. And I'll be honest with you, like a lot of people, I fucking hate the tabloid yeah, culture in, yeah. this, in this country. I hate it, especially when it comes to like how a completely different person from Amy Winehouse, like Princess Diana, is mm. being treated, yeah. or Meghan Markle is being treated right now. I, I just think it's shocking and disgusting. Yeah, absolutely. Me. Yeah. And there, there is actually a, a bit in it which is quite prescient where I think it's a first manager, I think it's Nick Shemansky, mm. says that they took her for an intervention. They tried to get through to her that, you know, she was on this very self-destructive path. 
and when they got to this supposedly secret location, they were surrounded by paparazzi. And he said there was absolutely no way that they could have known that without phone hacking. And sure enough, the, the year Amy Winehouse died, 2011, was the same year that the Leveson Enquiry started up. So, Oh, yeah, with News of the World. Yeah, yes. I remember that. I remember that distinctly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it all it all feeds into this portrait of a, an industry that is corrupt, obviously, and is actively destroying people as a kind of sport. Yeah, because Capardius mentions in the Q and A that he actually talked to uh, reporters and the paparazzi mm. after Amy Winehouse's death, and obviously they just felt absolutely awful for feeding into that lifestyle because they didn't have any idea of her mental health struggles at the time they, they just wanted to obviously just to get their job done and um you know just feed into it but yeah. now after amy winehouse's death they just feel absolutely awful that they've contributed to it yeah so they yeah. Should, i think yeah yeah so let's double back a bit let's talk about the moment where she sort of steps up a level because the mm. the frank stuff is there and it's covered. And I, I liked that Capardi is clearly enamoured of songs like What Is It About Men and uh, I Heard Love Is Blind enough to mm. play them at length. So yeah. the side of me that really loves Frank was, uh, I enjoyed that. There is, <laughs> there's an interview with her from around the time where she talks about being at best 80% happy with that album. And she says that someone put like fake strings on Take the Box, which she thinks sound terrible. I went to the credits. I tried to look this up because she is like really um, vociferous. Mm. And she says, I, you know, it's not just an artistic thing. I personally hate this guy for doing that. So I'm looking at the credits for Frank and I'm thinking, I'm looking for someone who only worked on like one or two tracks. One of them has to be Take the Box and sounds like an absolute twat. And apologies if this person is innocent, but there is one guy on Frank who gets a production credit on one track only. And it is Take the Box and his name is Johnny Rockstar. Now... I'm not saying that's definitely the guy, but... <laughs> Johnny Rockstar, are you joking? <laughs> it's like he's taken, like, Johnny Rotten's name and just like, oh, how can I tamper with this a bit? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? As a rock star, I like to live the rock and roll lifestyle, swigger Jack Daniels, a toot of cocaine, and then add some tasteful synth strings to a ballad about infidelity. That's just me being a rock star, I guess. Is that Blake, is that Blake Fielder? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, let's talk Blake Fielder. We've got yeah, to talk I think Blake Fielder now. Now we've got to talk about Blake Field now because yeah. I, I feel because he's a big part of how Amy became who we remember her by. He is, yeah. Blake Fielder is the guy she uh, married. I think she started dating him in between albums when he was with another woman. And a yeah. large part of what Back to Black is about is that moment where she was like deeply in love with him and he decided that he was going uh, back to his wife. But uh, that mm. 
changed afterwards. He married her. He ended up in jail for grievous bodily harm. Mm. Uh, and she started seeing someone else. And they introduced her. When he got out, he introduced her to heroin. And it was just a, like the most dysfunctional relationship you can think of. Everything was there. The mm. infidelity, the drugs, the violence, every ingredient for a really yeah, yeah, toxic yeah, yeah. relationship. Yeah, back onto the Sex Pistol point. It's a bit like um, Sid and Nancy. S- Sid and Nancy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very much like that. Very really similar, actually. It is quite weird for me as a big Sex Pistols fan when occasionally you will hear a song like that, that crazy sound song that was out when I was doing my A levels, which uses uh, has a line like "Oh, girl, me and you were like Sid and Nancy," and you think that is not a comparison you want to invite. <laughs> no, it, it definitely isn't. <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> you're messed up, man. People people used to talk about that like it was, you know, I suppose it's equally fucked up to talk about Romeo and Juliet that way. It's this, like, oh, me and her were like Romeo and Juliet in that we were both underage and we killed ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> over a misunderstanding as well. That, or over a letter one. that didn't deliver. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Shakespeare. Anyway, um... But no, I mean, Blakefield has always been a character who, I mean, firstly, you can tell he's like, not necessarily, would you call him a scumbag or something like that? I mean, oh, yeah, I'd go for scumbag. I think scumbag's yeah. made for him, yeah. Yeah, and he's the scuzziest person. And you look at Amy Winehouse, like, before she ended up the way she did, and it's just like, mm. here you have a bright, bonny girl who has, like, the whole future laid out in front of her, yeah. meeting up with this demon or something <laughs> yes. I don't, who's Blake Fielding looks like a complete arse let's be honest and it, it just dis, disravels simply after that yeah he is weirdly cocksure too for someone who has absolutely nothing going for himself it's like there's a bit when we are on the real downward spiral um, mm. and he is being interviewed for some sort of TV documentary or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do get glimpses of that interview. Yeah, and it, it's where they've—it's when they've separated, and he says something like, "Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm well rid of her, really. You know, I'm a handsome guy. I go to the gym, and it's like, all right, I am prepared to believe you've been to a gym, and that's being charitable. The rest of it is active fucking self-delusion." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Is not a character who you want to you believe a single word of truth from. So he's he's one of the villains of this documentary. And I think when it came out, everyone was expecting that any Amy Winehouse documentary is going to go very, very hard on Blake Fielder because he's just mm. a, a villain. He is someone with no friends left to fight his corner. The other person who was very outspokenly against this film when it came out, and I think is a bit mm. more complex, is Mitchell, uh, her father. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because um, Mitch Winehouse, who, especially how he's presented in this film, because he takes like very similar stance when it comes to as Blake Fielder. Because yeah. at one point, I think when Amy Winehouse is um, on recluse mode from the paparazzi in the press just to get away from her. I think it's in St. Lucia or something like yes. that. Yes, it yeah, is. Yeah, it is St. Yeah. Lucia. Um, he invites a camera crew round to do like this documentary on... What is it again? It's like for MTV or something. It's like to find a... 
I think what, what it's, the real Amy, yeah. What what it seems to have been pitched as, and you're right, it is hard to work it out from the film. It seems to have been pitched as a documentary about being Amy Winehouse's dad, but there is that fantastic telling bit of footage that they use where he's like sat in this deck chair on a tropical island holding forth, and the cameraman just sort of pans and zooms a bit to get to this tiny image of Amy standing in the mm. distance behind him. And you think for him, as with Blake, part of their problem was that they could never accept that their main value to the wider mm. world is that they are connected to Amy Winehouse, that they they were not intrinsically interesting as people. They were interesting because of this person they were tied to. Mm. Yeah, I mean, th there's another similar bit in the St. Lucia sequence where um, Amy Winehouse goes to is forced to sign autographs by two fans by her father. Yeah. I mean, okay, she probably she probably could have done that anyway in the right circumstances, because you know, we've seen her personality anyway. Yeah. But for her to be dragged into signing these autographs when obviously her mental capacity was completely run down, completely worn out, obviously, mm -hmm. as you were saying, like fighting bulimia, fighting drug addiction, everything like that. Yeah. Um, and then obviously she's all she comes off as quite rude towards this couple initially. But obviously, once you know the outcontest of a character at the time, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then we get to that sequence a bit later. And then, you know, Mitch is very confrontational. And it's amazing that it's still on tape because obviously the cameraman points down when they're having like this family argument in the middle of um, St. Lucia, in the middle of this Canary Island. And it, it just is really showing about that family relationship and that particular yeah. sequence. And it's a very, I think, really deep moment that really gets to that relationship at a, at a time when, you know, you're not expecting it. Yeah, I think the, the, that bit in Santa Lucia really shows Mitch in a very bad light. Despite that, I don't think, I, I think he said something of, at the time that he'd cooperated with the film when it was being made, but he saw a rough edit and he said, I realised that I was the villain of it. And I... I mean, I don't mm. think he is, if only because Blake is there, but I also mm. find it hard to be fully condemnatory of Mitch Winehouse because he's mm. somebody who made a lot of mistakes, like not being around for his daughter when she was growing yeah. up and now yeah. she's dead. And I can't imagine like having that on my conscience, really. I certainly mm. didn't think that he was the villain in this movie. I mean, if you look at the, I think um, the real villain of this is the media. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If you ask me, if you, yeah. if you have to ask me one quick, quick question, it is the media in this story because the way they treated Amy Winehouse was absolutely abhorrent. Mm. It should never have happened in the first place. And, you know, look where we are now. I mean, it, it's proven time and time again that, you know, this imagery is just an abusive cycle over and yeah. over again. It'll, it'll just find the next Amy Winehouse or the next uh, Meghan Markle to pick on. It's, not, I, it's yeah. horrific. Yeah. yeah. And I think that you know, you can see it obviously in the tabloid culture and you can see it in the paparazzi stuff. And yeah, that stuff is lower than low, but you see it even in some of the quote unquote educated stuff. Like there's there are music awards where people make jokes about her like mm. being 
drunk and waking up late and there's yeah, that yeah, awful yeah. bit where she gets sent to do a photo shoot with Terry Richardson who has a, a prolific career in both photography and accusations of rape against him uh, and it, they do this photo shoot which is basically sort of glamorising her self-harm habit and you think did anyone take a step back and think, is this a good idea? Is this what we want to be putting out there? Is this helping yeah. anyone? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, especially that earlier sequence that you mentioned, because I remember it, it's like the front front, I think, I think in the pre-run to the Grammys or something like that. I can't yeah, exactly yeah. remember the context that it is. But um, you see all these famous musicians behind them like Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters as well are there That's... standing right behind them yeah that felt quite weird didn't it I don't know yeah, why no. you felt more incongruous having Dave Grohl there other I suppose than the fact that Dave Grohl is intimately sort of linked to another tragic rock and roll casualty and that mm. you'd think maybe being Kurt Cobain's bandmate would make you a bit more circumspect about like things like this. Mm, yeah, yeah, and I suppose I assume we'll talk about the Twenty Seven Club later on in this episode. But through and through, it, it's like again history repeating itself. It's a bit of a tragic uh, yeah. tip end, but yeah. I also think one of the sweetest and funniest bits of this film involves an award ceremony, though, because there is a bit mm. where. They're at the Grammys, and it's uh, a year when she won very big at the Grammys. And um, I think it's when they're giving her the award for best single. I think it's the best single one. Yeah, I think it's one of the two. Yeah, yeah. Tony Bennett reads it out, and Capardia structures this documentary very, very well, I will say, that at the start of the film you hear her interviewed and she names her like holy trinity of influences as Dinah Washington, Sarah Vaughan and Tony Bennett and she's mm. on this satellite link up while the Grammys are taking place in America with like a group of friends and family around her and she's sort of standing in front of this camera where it's going to go live at any minute and when Tony Bennett comes on and starts reading out her name, she just breaks character totally and goes, Dad, it's Tony Bennett. Mm. And for a moment there, she is back to being a kid who loves music again at a point where yeah. her life is spiralling out of control. And it's wonderful to see that switch get flicked on in her eyes again. Yeah, yeah, it's a completely wonderful sequence. There's another wonderful sequence later on, which is my favourite bit in the whole film, where she actually does get to meet Tony Bennett. Yeah in that recording studio and that whole sequence of her wanting to bless her heart, bless Amy Winehouse's heart, of wanting to get that song just right. Yeah. And obviously being so nervous whilst doing it. It's, and this was, I, I think that was done like a few months before she uh, died. It was, it? it was like, yeah, mad, yeah. Can't remember exactly when, but it was, it was definitely like among the last things that she did. Yeah. Hmm. And it is just a lovely, lovely sequence because you just get a really overriding sense of wanting to do this song justice and how Tony Bennett describes as, you know, the best artists are the ones who are nervous before they step up to the microphone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, and I think there's an element of truth to that when looking at it through the context of this film. Yeah. 
I think the Tony Bennett sequence is one of the ones where you get a sense of what she could have been if she'd lived and cleaned up because mm. a lot of artists who have drug problems and recover from them, I suppose Bowie's the ultimate example of this, do develop mm. this incredible perfectionism and this kind of almost nervous desire to do the best job possible partly yeah. because the, the obsessive, addictive part of their personality has to go somewhere. And, you know, there's countless examples like this. I mean, think Iggy Pop or Alice Cooper, for example. Yeah, I mean, yeah. especially Alice Cooper. He had an issue with um, alcohol for years, mm. like a really heavy one. And obviously he fully recovered, got his act cleaned up together. And obviously he's like one of the, one of the more uh, beloved shock rock icons out there. So especially in the rock and roll world. So yeah, you do get those stories. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it does make you wonder what... And I try hard not to think this, because obviously, given the circumstances of uh, Winehouse's passing, um, it's it's very hard of what she would have become had she had, had that not had happened, yeah. basically. It's very hard to think that, because it is just incredibly depressing. Mm. You know? It is, yeah. And I, I think one of the great unsung heroes of Amy Winehouse's story, who is interviewed at gratifying length here, is Salam Remy, who I think mm -hmm. I'm right, I think I'm right in saying is the only person who has production credits on Frank and Back to Black. I, yeah, 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 I think he. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right there. I think I, I think you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't remember if Mark Ronson does or doesn't, but definitely Salam Raimi does. And I remember Salam Raimi, after her death, uh, said something which I, I thought really made me love the guy. Uh, sadly, it isn't in this film, but he said that as soon as she died, he got all of the unreleased recordings that they'd made together and just destroyed them like smashed mm. them into bits, broke the hard drive and everything. She, he said, you know, she was a perfectionist. She would have hated the idea of anyone listening to these recordings if she was alive. So I see absolutely no reason why they should listen to them when mm. she's dead. Yeah, that that's a completely telling thing of the character because I think shortly after her death, there was a compilation released of all, like, Lioness, the, yeah. Yeah, Lioness, yeah, that was the one. And like a lot of posthumous compilations, you know, I'm sure, you know, for the fans, it would help, obviously, of like the album that could have been. But at the same time, all that is is mostly just B-takes or B-sides. Yeah. And I, I listened to Lioness yeah. once and it all it, I mean, there's some diverting stuff in it, but all it did was hammer home to me the fact that there was no third album and she would have had mm. to have go a long, long way before there would be anything resembling a third album that it just wasn't mm. there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the 27 Club you mentioned, this is a weird piece of rock and roll mythology that rock stars who die young will traditionally die around the age of 27. And it's known that Kurt Cobain had a sort of fascination with this idea. Mm. And who else was there in it? There's uh, Jimi Hendrix, Janis right, Joplin. So the big, if I remember correctly, the big four is 
um, Brian Jones, who was the guitarist for the Rolling Stones. I think it's Brian yeah. Jones. Yeah. Brian Jones, uh, Jimi Hendrix, as he said, Janis Joplin, as he said, Jim Morrison. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Kirk Cobain and Amy Winehouse. Those are the big six that come out to my, in my mind. And obviously, there's been a lot more artists who have died at the age of 27 as well. Um, you know, more notably, even like as recently as Anton Yelchin as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. He died at 27 as well. So that just, and I'm just going to come out and say this now. I honestly don't believe in the idea that these deaths are linked. I, honestly, all I think is that it's just pure coincidental and preposterous yeah. to think that way. Like, even with it... someone like Kurt Cobain who died at his own hand, I genuinely do not think there was any part of him that was thinking, oh, next year I'll be 28, better get a move on. You know, it's, it's know, obviously your yeah. oh, shit. Yeah, it's just, I, I honestly don't think it's a fair judgment at all. It, it, it's, I mean, in a way, I remember, like, at the time of the White House's passing, I remember, like, looking at the YouTube comment section Mm. of the reaction of a mood and th th obviously you know never look at youtube com comments that's the, <laughs> yes yeah that's the homegrown place of fascism it's awful i hate it um but anyway there, there's yeah. one horrible comment in particular that was just like oh jimmy hendrix died like a complete god of a man and uh amy winehouse and kirk cobain died like wimps they don't deserve that's just attention seekers then you just come on from yeah jimmy hendrix had if i remember correctly he had he was exhausted mentally from a like a touring schedule that obviously was really bad on his physical and mental health. Mm. Plus, he he died in a similar fashion to Winehouse. He he had an alcohol problem and problems with drugs as well. Well, yeah, so I mean, no disrespect to Hendrix, yeah. but I don't remember any heroes of Greek mythological sagas choking on their own vomit. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, you just immediately think. You're an idiot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but it is sort of, I mean, a more sanguine reason for why this happens is that most people find that their relationship with alcohol and drugs changes a bit once you get around 30 years old. Most people mm. find the hangovers last longer. Most people find that they can't drink as much as they used to. And for most people, that is just a very banal change in their life. It just means, mm. you know, a bit of a worse headache every now and then. But if you have a serious drug or alcohol problem, that's probably going to take a more extreme toll on your body. And so it's mm. no surprise, I guess, that people who treat their body as though they're indestructible when they're in their teens and early 20s suddenly have serious health problems up to and including dying as they get into their late 20s. Yeah. But no, like I said, I mean, it's just a matter of um, questioning whether or not, because I, I think it's a subject that's talked an infant at the 27 club when it comes to popular music and i, I just think it should die to be mm. honest yeah i don't it's, think it's, it's worth it's too old though isn't it the 27 club mythology must be about 50 years old now so we had a mm. chance to kill it around its 27th anniversary but it's still staggering on yeah it's still staggering on amazingly enough and you know you just think why do we have this in the first place yes like why <laughs> just on the the subject of celebrity deaths because I, I know it's it's become this huge topic of conversation over the last five years because you know in 
2016, famously, every celebrity you ever loved died in the same year. Mm. Um, one of the things about Amy Winehouse, it wasn't the first celebrity death that cut me up. I think Elliot Smith was the first celebrity death that really mm. took its toll on me. The thing is, uh, one of the other people who was 27 in 2011 was me. So it was qu quite an odd experience that I was watching someone my own age die. You know, I had never really properly understood the tragedy of it because when I was a teenager and I was reading about rock and roll, somebody like Kurt Cobain or Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin seemed impossibly old, like 27. What does it even mean to be 27? And yeah, now someone who was born the same year as me was dying. Yeah, I mean... And there's a real, there's a real heartache to that as well. And there's a real mm. sense of, because when you think of the 27 Club in that context, mm. you think of like, oh God, 27 feels so old, you know, and this is normally coming from a mind of a teenager. Yeah. But now, as you say, I'm 25. I turned mm. 27 in two years time. So you just think, well, hang on, it's not that far ahead in the future anyway. You really think about it. You've got two years to develop that heroin habit. It's going to be tough, but I believe you can do it. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, but anyway, no, I, I mean, back to Amy, I, I think, like I said, I completely agree. I think it was a tremendous documentary. And the fact that, you know, Asif Kapadia went through um, cross referencing mm. everything. He, he explains, again, he explains in his the interviews that he's described that, um, you know, with every fact that he got, he had to cross-reference it with at least two other th additional people. Yeah. Um, obviously, to make it make sure he got it right, if that if one of those facts didn't have at least two additional people, that's it, it wasn't going in the finished film. Mm. So it's nice to see that dedication. It sounds like an agonising process, considering the amount of facts and information that is in this. But it's well worth the while because it, it just gives like a very authentic feeling to it. And uh, not just not just the number of facts, but I imagine when you were dealing with a story like this, talking to different people about Amy Winehouse must be like Rashomon. You know, he manages mm. to keep it down to a really tight, manageable level of contributors. Uh, the people who were talking about being friends with her at the start of the film are still talking about her at the end of the film. Mm. But I can imagine there were a lot of people around her who... I mean, there's that bit, isn't it, where she gets new management and her friends try and stage an intervention and it mm. doesn't take... And her manager says something like, well, you know, a lot of professional people have drug habits and they manage it. You know, a lot of doctors and lawyers and judges and people like that have it. And you think, yeah, that's not quite the point, is it? Yeah. I mean, there's that bit towards the end, the famous um, uh, Belgrade concert, which was her last concert, where yeah. this is where it spirals completely out of control. Mm. And... She refuses to sing. She obviously is off her mind on alcohol and drugs. Yeah. And she just, she clearly just doesn't want to do the content, doesn't want to go ahead with the tour. So, and everyone just says, yeah, it's basically that final gig that she did in Belgrade, in Serbia, was an unmitigated disaster waiting to yeah. happen. And, but there's this just really funny bit at the end where, um, you know, I think it's Nikki who says this, the, the manager. Mm. And he says that uh, Amy told him after that tour got 
uh, after that show was a disaster. Amy said to him, like, yeah, the tour got cancelled, but at least I can go to Nikki's wedding. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And then it was just like that little bit, that little golden nugget of an interview is so funny. It's tragic in the same sense, but it's also a bit funny. So it's nice to see some humour in the story as well. Nikki is pretty charming, I think. One of the things that I had forgotten or that I didn't pick up when I first watched this film is that Nikki was not much older than her. I mean, he mm. talks about a few of the people around her at the start, like uh, Nick Shemansky and uh, Tyler James, who's I think has just written a book about his friendship with Amy Winehouse. Yeah, uh, yeah I heard that, yeah. Yeah. They were like very, very junior people in the record industry at the time. And they were being handed Amy Winehouse as their first major management project, which I mean, Jesus Christ, talk about a baptism of fire. But mm. yeah, it, it is incredible to me when you see that early footage of sort of the Nick shot of Amy in the back of a cab when she's mm. going to record Frank and you don't see him i always pictured some older like music industry guy who'd been around the blocks a bit and he was 19. Mm. It, i mean it's incredible yeah 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 extraordinary I, th I think like for a film to get me this like interested and invested into a subject that i was not expecting to be interested and invested in at all yeah um Capaldi has done a really bang-up job here. I think this is definitely an oppressive work that really deserves to be talked about and deserves to be touched, because it's fascinating as well. Yeah. Godly fascinating of how that pop star, rock star persona is of a dying breed, but at the same time, those who can't handle it, who wants to be shut away from it, will do so in all their power. Mm. And that comes at a cost, unfortunately. So, Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? And I think... A lot of people did see her as being in the sort of tragic rock star mold, like you say, 27 Club, um, which is strange because almost all of her influences are, are jazz-based. I remember distinctly when Frank came out, there was kind of a wave of easy listening type singers like um, Nora Jones and like, like Dido. Um, that, that moment, right? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know exactly what moment. <laughs> there is a there is a bit, listeners, in the film where Amy uh, is being interviewed and her music is compared to Dido, and her facial expressions are just murderous. They're incredible, but a lot of people did compare her to artists like Nora Jones and Dido at the start because I think. The British music press, when it existed, and increasingly it doesn't, uh, were always really shit at dealing with and writing about and understanding music that wasn't either rock or techno. You know, anything mm. outside of that. That, like, I remember buying NME every week back in the 90s, and I read almost nothing about hip-hop. And you look back at the 90s and you think, how do you write about music in that decade and not write about hip hop? But every week they reliably managed it. Hmm. Oh, that story just reminds me of, um, I think in the, this is completely going off topic, but in, um, I think it's uh, the Galaxy Quest documentary about oh, yeah. um, Alan Rickman. 
um, there's a bit in it where one of the actors said he met Alan Rickman, and Alan Rickman said to them, "Yeah, I just recently got turned down, <laughs> got turned down a role." And you know, the friend says, "Okay, but who did they give the role to?" And then he just goes in the most venomous tone of voice, Bill Nye. <laughs> and then just ends it there and you just immediately think oh that moment that you've just described going remind me of that and that is funny as hell <laughs> that's a great moment i i do love her snark um i mean that grammys bit also has and we're back to the britney spears thing again it also has the bit where um they're reading out the nominees and one of them is what goes around comes around by justin timberlake and she mm. just says his song's called what goes around comes around and then she just pulls this very telling look like the absolute <laughs> disdain she has in her eyes at that moment is so great she's such a character um yeah 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 and you know that's not your typical um, manufactured pop star that's someone of real class and character and you've got yeah. to respect Winehouse for that yeah absolutely yeah well I think that's a good place to leave off really I think that's a, a pretty good point to end on I just want to quickly add before we end this episode I mean I did watch obviously a lot of Asa Kofadia interviews but I implore you watch his Criterion Closet video as well oh it's fucking hilarious okay <laughs> okay because because I, I love those videos because you get like people like him and Barry Jenkins who are just like completely, you would think they would go for the high glamour stuff and yeah. you know, go for the, all the polished stuff. No, they're just as greedy as, he, as the rest. They just <laughs> ransack the place. And there's a bit where Asif Kapadia picks up a copy of Sailor, says, warning, may contain taboo content. He reads out the sticker aloud and then it jump cuts and then he just goes, just because, and then puts it in the Criterion bag. <laughs> I just like that me contain taboo content. Me, I think you would have to live in a, a pretty liberal household for sale or not to register as taboo content. <laughs> but no, it's oh, it, it, it's fantastic. Um, but no, Asif Kabadia he's definitely made a great documentary. He's also one of these people who I can listen to for days on end as well. Yeah, he's a really interesting interviewee, isn't he? I remember yeah. hearing a bit from him back when, um, in the 2012 Olympics, the government funded four shorts from different British directors that were meant to sum up their vision of Britain, and Kapadia did one, Lynn Ramsey did a great one, and then the government thought, that's, that's such a good result, we'll never fund arts again. Um, but yeah, I remember hearing him interviewed a lot then about what he was doing, and he was a really interesting guy. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope he doesn't make like another documentary about, um, you know, the, the more to add to his trilogy. I hope he does something different after this. Yeah, I agree. Be, I, I really want to see him flex his muscles after this. So even, whether that be another documentary of a different mold or even a fiction film, as long as it's like something that can be distinguished from his filmography. Yeah, and also I think a lot of people have moved in on his turf, you know, again, watching a lot of the coverage of the Britney Spears thing or watching that uh, Michael Jackson documentary that came out a bit back. I did get a feeling that hmm, everyone who's doing these things has watched Amy quite a lot, haven't they? But um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he is, he is you... often talked, I will say this, he is often talked 
about expanding the short film he did about London for the 2012 Olympics project into a feature, and I think that could be really interesting. Mm, yeah, yeah. But I'm excited, nonetheless. Very excited. Yeah. So, uh, I think that wraps it up. I think that's uh, your lot from Pop Screen for this week. Don't forget that if you subscribe to our Patreon, you can get a monthly bonus episode as well as access to our other movie podcast, Director's Lottery, which Aiden is sometimes on as well. Mm. Uh, but until then, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. And I've been Aiden. See you next week. Mm.